Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Hey, Augie. Morning, Nia. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Uh, and I'm and I'm particularly excited uh, because uh, we get to continue our discussion of the Department of War, which eventually becomes the Department of Defense. Yes, and where we left. Le- this is like one of those serial remember the serial uh movies when we were well not when we were kids but when our parents were kids kids where they would go to the and there'd be a cliffhanger at the end of the previous week's serial and then you would go to the movie house and see the yes it's kind the of the next one too. yes yeah i'd like to think that we do that with our with our listeners although i'm not sure our listeners feel particularly cliffhanged <laughs> cliffhangered but so where we left last time, we had gotten up to World War I, which is, uh, as I think you put it to me, uh, off, off uh, recording, recording the first 140 years out of the way. Um, <laughs> but then it gets a little sticky wicket, like starting with World War I, things get more complicated in part because we come out of that sort of isolationist, like just as a note for for listeners, up until World War One, we had only fought wars in our hemisphere and wars that sort of directly affected us. Yeah, we weren't large, we yeah. weren't going out kicking yeah, butt and taking names around the world. That's yeah, not we were not imperialistic uh, by any stretch. Right, um, we didn't just say Europe looks like something we could add to our property. Like that's not. We just didn't do that. And then you get World War One and you get some real changes in the attitude about yeah, and, the and, Department and, of War, right? And, and the idea of the you know the United States being isolationist um, uh, definitely changed. I mean, and it, it, let's be very clear. Uh, Nia, I mean, there was a pitched battle in this country as to whether or not the United States should get involved in World War One. Um, yeah, it wasn't an easy. Oh, sure, we'll go do that, right? There were a lot of people who said, "No, no, 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 that's all the way in Europe. Let them fight it out amongst themselves. It doesn't involve us." But in but part, it, was it was was part of our connection or part of our reason for joining World War One financial? Well, I mean, some of it was financial, but it, it was this this idea that um, if we did not get involved, the war might not have ended as quickly as it did. I mean, this was a you know a, a bloody war with a lot of casualties. Yes, um, trench and, warfare. Um, and and it really required the United States Department of War to change. Um, and uh you know so for instance um the department of war was was given broad authority to take over parts of the u.s economy um because 
we needed, you know, materials, men, supplies, because again, as you pointed out, Ania, the war was overseas. The war right. was overseas. Right. We have to right? get to the war in war, order to fight it. Fight it. That's right. Um, and this required significant changes. Um, um, Who was the Secretary of War at this time? Uh, this was, oh, uh, you, <laughs> I believe you, you actually like uh, uh, this secretary's name, Newton D. Baker. Newton. <laughs> I, I love these names. That's, um, that, that's not a first name you see used all that much. Okay. Right. These and he days. had, he had a, a person in charge of munitions, Benedict Crowell. Yes. Right. Benedict, yes. Okay. And uh, and um, and his chief of staff was Peyton C. March. March. <laughs> I just love, I just love these names. I do. Um, uh, I'm such a cheap date, but the, but that didn't come easily, right? Because at first, wasn't there some serious uh, infrastructure problems that they had to overcome? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the country just was, was ill-prepared uh, to, uh, to, uh, to get involved in, in, into this kind of effort. Uh, and the, the, the federal government, particularly the Department of War, uh, was ill-prepared. Um, uh, it, it got better, though, with World War II, didn't it? Uh, yes, it did. Um, right, because World War I, we were trying to figure out how to be an industrialized nation at war, war. Yeah. in a large war situation. And, and, and what was particularly interesting, uh, Nia, about uh, the United States Department of War during World War II was um, FDR went ahead and uh, had as his Secretary of War, Henry Stimson. Stimson served as a Secretary of War 30 years earlier. So, oh, he actually, you know, picked uh, an experienced person to run the Secretary of War, um, and it, Roosevelt, as was the way he ran basically his White House, didn't rely just on Stimson. He actually relied on uh, uh, General George Marshall uh, on military strategy. Um, so. It was very interesting the way FDR used the War Department and how he went about. Um, and again, he's commander in chief, right? Um, and you know, we saw this early on with you know President Washington. But even during World War II, the I, you know the thought process was the president was in charge of the War Department. <laughs> I mean, um, um, and Roosevelt had not served. That is correct. Yeah. Um, he had been the secretary of the Navy during World War One, but he that was a civilian uh, position. Right. Um, you know, he never served in a uniform capacity. But General Marshall, didn't General Marshall complain about the sort of that the that the chief of staff 
of the army or excuse me, the chief of staff of the war department, war department. had a lot of detail where, like there was because there were so many people or so many bureaus and so many different parts of the it wasn't as streamlined i guess is what i'm getting at as it is now now i think it's a lot more streamlined about who reports to who and how many people report to one individual rather than if you think about the chief of staff having a whole bunch of people reporting to him and then having to report to the president that's more complicated when we moved into world war ii the and we mentioned this in the previous podcast episode, the debate as to how to organize the War Department really came to a head, right? Okay. Should, should we have bureaus or should we go ahead and, um, uh, you know, split up the War Department by function? Um, mm. And and in, in, in this is not just a battle that you see within the War Department. I mean, you see this all the time in, in large bureaucracies, um, even today, right? Right. You know, how do you structure it? How do you organize it? You know, how do you organize a bureaucracy so that it achieves its basic functions or purposes? Um, and yeah, Marsh- way in the future, when we talk about the Department of Homeland Security, somehow FEMA ended up in the Department of Homeland, Homeland Security, Security. Yeah. which yes. there is a huge controversy about even today, like even broiling, broiling under the surface of all this is should FEMA really be part of Homeland Security? Security, yes, uh, because what is the purpose of Homeland Security? Right, and what's the purpose of FEMA? FEMA, right, um, and is that a good fit? I mean, right. in, in historically, FEMA had been a standalone agency reporting directly to a president, but now it's part of a larger bureaucracy. Can it get lost in that larger bureaucracy? Right. right? Um, so Stimson, what does he do with, I mean, you said he streamlined, what did? Well, basically what Stimson did was he divided the army into three autonomous components. Um, you had the army ground forces, you had the uh, Army Air Force. So this is the precursor to the United States Air Force. Um, and then he had uh, the services of supply. So basically a supply unit. Operation, yeah. okay. Yeah, okay. Um, getting food, that, getting tanks, getting whatever to wherever you need it to go. Yes, uniforms, okay. I mean, because oh, like, right. yeah. Boots, I mean, socks, I mean- well, I mean, simpler it, things than what I'm thinking of, but but but, I mean, but you can't have a fighting force without socks. It, well, you just it, can't. Like, and you and you had different uniforms because we were fighting in different parts of the world. So a uniform that might work. In, oh, in Siberia, yeah, it's right. not going to work in in the Philippines, right? Because yeah, the temperature yeah. difference is going to be. So, you know, if you're fighting in Europe during the middle of winter. Or North Africa Africa in the middle of summer. Summer versus, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, so, I mean. That makes sense. I didn't even think about that, but that would be a logistical nightmare. Nightmare. This was. To make sure that people had enough. Huge undertaking, right? 
you know, you want to talk about supply, right? Nia, how do you go ahead and make sure that you have enough gasoline for the tanks? Uh, I mean, you have to have supply tankers and you have to protect the supply tankers and they have to and they have to chase the army as it advances right because armies don't just stay in one spot and fight and fight and fight and fight they the whole point of having an army is to take land is to take property so somebody you have to all of that stuff has to follow those people and then retreat if they start to lose like yeah, so you're in this precarious position. You don't want to get too far behind with your supplies because you, then you basically leave your ground forces um, exposed without enough supplies to continue to fight. And you might get cut off Yeah, by a rear action. <laughs> That's right. Okay. But you don't want to be so close that you're in the actual battle standing there in, an, in a gasoline Yes. Resupply truck, because that's not going to end well for anybody. The other thing that became really obvious in the War Department during World War II was uh, the War Department was beginning to lack space in Washington, D.C. Okay. Okay, because World War II is huge. World War II was huge. And and, and being and, fought on multiple fronts, so you... Yeah, the, you're going to end up with a lot of staff. And the War Department was spread all over Washington, D.C., suburban Maryland, Virginia. Oh, really? Yes. I work for the War Department. Which building? <laughs> yeah, right. Okay. okay. Um, and interestingly enough, um, it was... <gasps> Is it that was when a, we get... The Pentagon. Ah, we and love night- the Pentagon. It's a beautiful building. <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's a... It's a really cool, and somebody explained to me one time the complexity of finding someone's office in the Pentagon, because you have to know which section, which floor, but there's like letters and numbers involved in all of these, and there, so there's E section, and there's a number for the floor, but then there's also a side of the building. I don't even know how to explain it, but yeah, it is... It is not an easy thing to find a person's office in the Pentagon. Let me put and it when it took nearly a year and a half for it to be built. And really, I didn't realize that long. Okay. Yeah. And well, you know, we're it's huge. Well, one, it's huge, but also we were actually fighting a war. Oh, that's true. <laughs> that's true. That's an excellent point because if, if it was built in 43. We were in it. We were in it at that point. point, Right. And at the time it was considered um, uh, when they finally built it, it was considered the the world's largest office building. Okay. Okay. Um, So I hear, I hear that Washington post reporters, if they're waiting to see if we're going to go to war, they will wait at the Pentagon for pizza deliveries in the middle of the night. The night, yes. yes. And if they get bunches and bunches of pizza, you know that they're planning something. Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that as a, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I, I like to think it is. Um, I've, by the way, Nia, I've actually heard that from reporters who have covered different parts of government. 
right? Oh, really? That they do it in different buildings? You know, they... Oh, they're hanging around the <laughs> Fed, waiting to see if it's going to go up X number of basis points by the number of pizza that gets delivered. <laughs> so uh, in my life, I've known a number of reporters um, who have covered... I knew you were shady. Okay, who have covered police departments, right? Um, and they know when something um, is going down um, <clears throat> by whether ah. or not, you know, uh, uh, you know, the pizzas are being delivered to um, a police precinct um, or are, there are delays in the turnover in shifts. Oh, OK. OK. That's really uh, clever. Yes. Uh, reporters, they're clever. Yes. Um, so. After so so during World War II, we get the building of the Pentagon. We get the sort of consolidation of of the work into one spot. We also get consolidation of the various bureaus into chunks, so that now it's easier to manage. And and we're going to have a post-war period with where it becomes the Department of Defense, right? So yes. But, but before we do that. Um, I had no idea the number of people who had been Secretary of War who went on to do things like who I've heard of, who yeah. who went on to do things. I'm not trying to be ugly to any government official or secretary who's listening to this podcast. One, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't you have other things to do? But also, two. Um, I'm not casting aspersions on you, but I don't know your name most of the time. Most of the time, if you said to me, Nia, name the secretary, the current secretaries in the current administration, I might be able to eke out a couple. Like, yeah, me. I mean, it, it, and, and I give my students a hard time because they can't name all nine of the Supreme Court justices. But there's only 15 cabinet secretaries. And most of the time, if I get maybe half of them correct. Okay. And I'm like, but I mean, right and I'm now, I'm lucky if I get two. Yeah. Right. Um, I mean, so. And partly that's a good thing because if you know that person's name, it means that something terrible is going on with that. <laughs> yeah. Right. With that department, generally speaking, it, like the reason that people knew Betsy DeVos, but couldn't name most of the other people in Donald Trump's cabinet was because the Department of Education was perceived to be in great disarray under, under Secretary DeVos. Yes. The reason that people remember Howard Baker is because Howard Baker worked for 41 during the Gulf War, right? Trying to bring about yeah, at least yes. some peaceful resolution to all that. So, so like, you know, if you don't know people's names, that's actually a good thing in some ways, because it means that things are just working along the way they generally have always done. And, and for m many government bureaucrats, even if they are secretaries of departments, they would probably pref prefer to be nameless, faceless. They serve their, you know, four years, okay, or three years. And that's it, right? Right. Okay. And they're never known. And it's uh, a good thing, right? Because yes. they didn't make the news. Yes. They in did not. some way or Wait, for something yeah. terrible or whatever. Yeah. But we have, we have, now we have Henry Knox, who's the first. Yes. But we James, have other people on there. 
James Monroe, uh, who eventually became president, um, he was a secretary of war. We mentioned Calhoun, yep. um, uh, who uh, had a very long career in the United States Senate. I did not know this until I did the research. Jefferson Davis um, was a secretary of war before he became president of the Confederacy. I did not know that. I didn't either until I okay. saw your notes. And that's that. There are many things we could unpack about that. So we'll do it now. Um, uh, Edwin, here's another good uh, first name, Edwin. Um, not Edward, Edwin. Edwin Stanton uh, was part of Lincoln's team of rivals. Okay. So Edward Stanton would have would have run against Lincoln because that's when he when he yes. when he chose his team of rivals they were all people who ran against him against him the for primaries. the Repos yeah for the Republican okay. Party nomi nomination. I love this name. Oh, the next one, Alfonso Al Tate. Oh, oh, Taft. Taft. Sorry, Alfonso Taft. Who Taft? You have heard of because President Taft, who was not Alfonso Taft, but Alfonso Taft's son, right? Yes. Alfonso Taft was the father. Yes. Um, okay. Um, he was only Secretary of War for 75 days, but he goes back to Ohio and basically creates the Taft, you know, political machine in Ohio, a political machine that has continued even into this millennium, right? Right. Because so we have William Taft, who became president. Yes. And then, but then William Taft's son, a son, uh, Robert becomes a U.S. senator. He has offspring, okay, and they have elected positions in Ohio. Okay, and some of the Tafts were governors, right? And some of them were senators, um, U.S. senators, uh, also state senators, and that yes. sort of thing, right? So yes. they, yeah, yeah, that's a that's a that's a Ohio family of power. Yes. Okay. Um, and then you have Henry Stimson, um, who was Secretary of War for President Taft. But then 30 years later, Roosevelt, a Democrat, appoints him Secretary of War. And again, so you must have thought he did a good job. Bill Newman and I talked about this with Unia uh, 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 previously. It's only recently that you see secretaries who, it was not unusual in our country's history to actually have people to run federal departments and agencies across uh, presidential administrations of different parties, okay? And you see this with Stimson, right? Um, it wasn't that all, all that unusual. We live in such a polarized partisan time, you know, that the idea that um, that Biden would have a have Republican, Republican Secretary of State. State, okay, would be unheard of, right? Which is uh, really unfortunate because yeah. what you want are the best people for the job. Yes. I, um, I firmly believe that parties should be second and who's best for the job should be first. That, yeah. that if you know that you're entering a time of, let's say, fiscal drama, right, you want 
people who have been really good at fiscal policy, regardless of their party, because it's going to hurt Americans if we don't have good people dealing with all that. It, it shouldn't be about party. It should be about. And in particular, who's good at this job? Secretaries keep their jobs if they do what the president wants them to do, right? Right. So if a Democratic president appointed a Republican to run, for instance, secretary, you know, the, the State Department, as long as they went ahead and did what a Demo you know, the president wants them to do, okay, um, if, they're, if they are able to go ahead and, you know, subvert, you know, push down their partisan preferences, okay, if they, if they are experienced at running the State Department, then why not? Right. Right? Okay. Um, so. But. But so then, so now we move into the DOD. Yes. Right. So we become the Department of, we go from the Department of War to the Department of Defense, which I think is an interesting name change, which you and I should philosophically talk about at some point, <laughs> whether words in the government actually mean what they think they mean. Um, well, the thinking in part, okay, so at the end of World War II, President Truman uh, proposes a creation of a unified Department of National Defense, okay? And he gives this um, uh, talk to the United States Congress. Um, and, you know, before Truman became vice president, he was a U.S. senator from Missouri. And his claim to fame as a U.S. senator was when the nation first got involved in World War II, Truman was pointing out all the ways that there was waste, fraud, and abuse <laughs> in the nation ramping up to go to war. Which right? there would have been capitalism. Oh, yeah. right? I mean, well, not only was, but I mean, and again, very few people when you go, when a nation goes to war, is like, how do we do this, you know, following the three E's of efficiency, effectiveness, and something being economical, right? You know, we just want to go ahead and get into the war and make a difference, win the war, right? Well, and there are always profiteers. Sure. There are always profiteers. There are always people who are like, oh, you need nylon? I got nylon over here, but the price <laughs> just went up $17,000 a barrel or whatever, right? That, that gouging is going to happen. Uh, but I like that Truman was like, this is unacceptable because that sounds so very Truman-like, doesn't it? Oh, yes. say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That's unacceptable. You know, you know, you know, you know, standard, you know, Midwest. This right. just this just doesn't make sense. This right? is not okay, but not hugely loudly fussy, just sort of this is not okay. Okay. And I I think can I throw out there that another one of the reasons that they might have gone with defense rather than war is People were tired of, tired of war. At the end of the war, people were just done. If you had stuck a fork in them, it would have come out clean like a cake. I mean, I mean, they, I mean, they were not having it. 
and the words war department suggested that the purpose of the department was to fight wars. Right. But after World War II, was to defend democracy. Defend democracy. Okay. And which is how you end up being able to justify the Cold War. But that is another episode. (laughs) We'll discuss another time. Okay. So Truman convinces Congress to go ahead and pass the National Security Act of 1947, right? And it basically, if you will, created what we know today is the Department of Defense, right? But we get more than just the Department of Defense. We get the Central Intelligence Agency, the National Security Council, okay, um, official recognition of the Air Force, okay, and the creation of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, okay? This all is all part of, okay, a significant reorganization of the Department of War, okay? Um, this was just right because the CIA used to be the Defense Intelligence Agency, the National Security Agency, although the NSA still exists, um, although they call themselves no such agency, or sorry, uh, other people call them that. Um, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and the National <laughs> Reconnaissance Office, like that is also part of when you decentralize all of your intelligence gathering and you have what regularly Augie refers to as turf wars, right? People who don't want to share their information. Then you have things that get, that, that go by the wayside because there's no centralized agency. So putting that under the central intelligence agency, the CIA, right? Where you centralize all that stuff, at least theoretically, helps to to make intelligence gathering a more streamlined yeah process how it's gathered analyzed and then recommendations are made to uh decision makers right and like all things (laughs) um it again devolves so that when you get 9-11 later which we which is not part of this episode we're not going to focus hugely on but when you get 9-11 later one of the complaints was that there was not enough intelligence sharing across the various intelligence agencies so so whenever we say that they gathered and they and they streamlined and they focus things i'm sure you've noticed over this episode that it's focused and then it gets unfocused because the bureaucracy gets bloated and people start pulling things apart because they want to be in charge of x thing but not y right so they pull all this stuff apart and then somebody says no 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 and they bring it all back together again and then it starts to slowly drift apart and and also recognize too in a democracy and you see this with the department of defense nia right uh members of congress are interested in how the department of defense is going to benefit their congressional district or right. their or their state, right? Yeah, you try to close a military base, <laughs> right? And okay. see what that senator does to your 
your budget to your life <laughs> okay right? i mean they make you cry because they're not playing about the fact that those are their constituents that's tax money that's these um, are good jobs, jobs that's, that's right these are really good jobs okay they can make a, a, a huge difference in the lives of their constituents. Well, right? and guess what? All those people who come to that base and spend money in the towns around that. Yes. That's the but, reason some towns in this country exist at all. It's I mean, because there's a military base close by. Fayetteville, that's right. I am looking at you, well, which would I mean, not exist without Fort Bragg. Like it just, I well, mean, it I would mean, exist, but it would not exist in the form that it is. Well, or think about, for instance, in the our home state of Virginia. Uh, you know, Virginia Beach, Hampton Roads. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, w w without the United States Navy, I mean, wouldn't exist. <laughs> wouldn't exist. <laughs> right. I mean, um, so it, to me, it was truly fascinating the fact that this all happened right after the war. And I'm not in. And, and in the research I did, scholars are all over the map on this, because on one hand, as you pointed out, okay, the nation after World War II was tired of being in the war, right? Um, on the, but how quickly the decision was made, okay, to convert the War Department to the Department of Defense and then consolidate under the Department of Defense okay all of these units okay it's like you never you should never make a decision about buying a new car okay when you're it, when, when never you, when make you're, big decisions under stress yes that's right okay okay right. don't buy a new car when your car is in the shop for the third time and you're just like screw this i'm going and buying a new car right you know, that's a bad time to make that decision. decision. You're going to buy the first car that you come across that's reasonably what you'd be willing to, to have. Or, you know, the, the old adage that you never go grocery shopping on an empty stomach. Right. right? When you're hungry. That's right. <laughs> you know, you just don't. So. Yeah, you will make bad life choices when you do that. So it, it was very interesting that this happened. I mean, you know, think about this, right? The war ends in 45. Within two years, Congress passes the National Security Act. By 1949, the Department of War is renamed the Department of Defense, right? I mean, that's... Boom, boom, boom. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it, it speaks to, we, we're going to have to do this better if we're going to do this. Yes. If right. we're going to get involved in these worldwide conflicts, we have to have a better system. We have to do a better job of this. That's what it speaks to. It speaks to, yeah, we got along and we did what we needed to do in World War II, but we've got to be better at it. And Truman Whatever, whatever else one may say about President Truman, President Truman was an excellent organizer yes. in the sense of we need, to re, we need to organize the government so that it makes sense and it works as efficiently as possible. Yes. So it is not surprising that it would happen. Now, isn't the, isn't the national highway system Truman? 
No, that was Eisenhower. Eisenhower. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, and for listeners, if and you that's don't a defense get, issue too, right? That's right. a <laughs> that that is that is one of the great examples of of how a federal government program was created for X purpose, but it ends up serving a different purpose, right? Right. Because when Eisenhower pitched a national highway system to the United States Congress, um, he went ahead and argued that we needed it for defense purposes. You know, to be able to move troops, weapons um, around the country and to avoid being targeted by the Soviet Union, we needed a highway transportation system much like what he saw in Germany during World War II. Ah. Because one of the ways that Germany was so effective at getting troops and supplies, okay, was they have, uh, you know, the Audubon, right? And a great they, highway system in general. Great, yeah, a great highway system in general. But of course, okay. it ends up... It ends but up it being, ends up being the way that we get to spring break <laughs> in Florida from New York. Get on 95 and drive south. All right. Okay. The beach. Okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it is truly fascinating. Um, but, you know, near the Department of Defense um, is, you know, we, we just mentioned Eisenhower. Um, you know, the. De- it's such a huge part of our of, lives. Of, it is. And, and Eisenhower. Um, uh, uh, when he finished his second term, gave a farewell address. Um, and I, uh, okay. The military, the military industrial, industrial complex. complex. Um, he warned of this in his farewell address. Um, and, um, and Eisenhower thought that the nation needed to guard against uh, the influence of the military and defense contractors um, having such close relationships and so much influence with members of Congress, okay? Um, and, 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 and this has been the criticism of the United States post-World War II, that so much of, of um, what our federal government does and so much of our spending is for defense. Right. That we have shortchanged, you know, other kinds of spending priorities. Um, that. Well, and the argument that I have heard is that we spend so much in comparison to other nations. Yes. Yes. That it's sort of it's sort of embarrassingly ridiculous how much we spend on having a a defense department, a department of defense and, and all the stuff that goes on with that. But it's not surprising to me that there would be a, a, a bloat that would come with having a professional army which yeah. is what you have. You have a professional army. You have people who are, who are paid to do that job. 
Um, you don't have the draft anymore, at least not right now. We, we have had the draft at various points in our history, but right now we don't have the draft. So it's not surprising that you would end up with people. I, I appreciate Eisenhower's warning because I think it was I think it was accurate that this is going to become an industry. It's yeah, going but, to become it, a, a, and, and, its and own there, entity that you have to be really careful of. And there were two parts to his warning. One was the industry and how it could be damaging to, if you will, governing. But he also warned about this over-reliance on um, science-based public policy, what he called the scientific technological elite. And you see this a lot in the Department of Defense, right? We need the most up-to-date current weapons because our opponent right. might have them, right? Right. So we rely on science and technology, but you know, many public policy decisions perhaps should be based or made on, you know, what do humans need, right? Which is not necessarily related to science. Science isn't science doesn't always solve a public policy problem, right? Because science frequently changes, right? So our understanding know, of the world frequently changes. changes, right? Okay. And science might tell us that this would be the best solution to a public policy problem. But if the public's not willing to accept that particular solution, then science isn't solving the problem. Oh, my goodness. An excellent example of this for people who think that Augie is being anti-science, because he's not, <laughs> no. is when, uh, when there's a giant flood and, and people come in and they say, oh, well, the way to solve this is to pick this town up and move it 100 miles in that direction. And then you'll never have this problem again because you will be clear of the floodplain and blah, blah, blah. That is the purely scientific solution to that problem. Sure. Tell it to the people who have lived in that town for 200 generations, right? They, they don't want to leave their town. They don't want to leave their spot where their spot is because they've been there forever. It is not, it is perfectly scientific solution that will not work in an actual social situation. Think People about won't Nia, leave their homes because they love that place. Nia, I'm going to go a little bit further with your example. Think about what many planners suggested we do with New Orleans post-Hurricane Katrina. What Move everybody out. Yes. Move okay. everybody out, move them to higher ground, get away from Lake Pontchartrain. It's a mess. The levees don't work. Y'all all have to move inland. Okay. And, and New Orleans went, I'm sorry, were you talking to us? We weren't listening. <laughs> I mean, what? I mean, We've been here for how many years and you're going to just try to move us inland? Like, uh, no. I mean, and, and scientifically, the planners are correct. Right. I mean, New it's Orleans, a bowl. You've yes. built a city in a bowl. A bowl, right? Okay. What do you want us to do for you? And they're like, fix the levees. Right. Okay. But how do you go ahead and tell a whole bunch of people? Right. Who whose who, families have been there for hundreds, for hundreds of, years. of years. Who 
relish that culture, who make lives there, right? Well, who, that, you know, sorry, um, you know, you're going to have to move because it makes no sense to go ahead and keep hundreds of thousands of people, okay, in a city that's below sea level. Right. <laughs> right. Unless we put you in a submarine, this isn't going to work. And, <laughs> and yet people rebuild. People rebuild sure. after Katrina. So I, I, I hear him on that. Um, I, I think that, can we, can we talk uh, briefly about the various secretaries of defense before we get into sort of the criticisms of Oh yeah, of defense, and I know uh, we're um, we're going to go a little bit long on this one because the criticisms are going to take us, but we'll try to keep it as as uh, tight as we can. But can we just? I knew every single name on the list except the first name. It's weird to me, and it says a lot about I think about the world I live in that I can almost always name who the secretary secretary of defense, defense is. Yes, yeah. I, that I, I, implies I, a more warlike country that I am that I am comfortable feeling like we are. It, it, you know, Nia, I had the same conclusion as I was, you know, coming up with the list of some of the more prominent secretaries of defense. And I'm like, I know these. Right. I, I can I actually pick these people's pictures, pictures out. OK. From but, other people's pictures. Like I would know who they were, except for but, George Marshall. I, I couldn't pick out George Marshall or James Forrestal, who was the first. But you have on here Robert McNamara. Yeah, and, he was he was the Secretary of Defense for both JFK and LBJ during the Vietnam War. Uh Casper Weinberger. Um Iran Contra. Uh, that's right, Iran Contra. <laughs> okay. Dick Cheney. I completely forgot, Nia, that Dick Cheney was Bush 41 Secretary of De uh, Defense. I completely forgot. Okay. I I knew you're he was, right. I didn't, I, I, I mean, I know him as vice president, but I knew he was part of the Bush 41 national security team. Right. But I but, didn't okay. Um uh honestly, I probably would have listed him as the national security advisor advisor in right? my brain i probably would have but rumsfeld right yes <laughs> unknown unknowns his infamous known unknowns unknown unknowns and you're like <laughs> what what are, you, oh. what are you saying um but we've what's never had a woman we've we have never had a female department of defense, defense uh, uh, secretary, uh, secretary of, defense. of defense not yet nope which is an interesting question of whether the military, now that women are finding their way into the military in higher and higher rank, if we will see, because we're now seeing generals and we're seeing multi-star generals, female, uh, females in those positions, if we will eventually see a secretary of defense. Um, that is, I know, I know they don't always come out of the military, but a lot of these people I think served at some point before they went into civilian life. And, and, and that's also very interesting, too. There is a federal law in NIA that says um, if you that's are right. that there is a general prohibition on uh, a former officer in the military serving as secretary of defense. 
isn't it a certain number of years you have to have been retired? Because yes. I seem to recall that somebody wanted Colin Powell at one point and he hadn't been out long enough. Long enough. And the Bush 43 administration didn't want to go ahead and burn political capital on it. Joe Biden had to do it with his secretary of defense, um, uh, who is our first African-American secretary of defense, um, uh, General Austin. Um, but uh, there is there is a prohibition. And again, it's designed to make sure that we don't have such an explicit, if you will, um, military industrial revolving door door. Right. Yeah. OK. Um, um, so if yeah. we have if we have a moment, I think we have just a moment. Can you mention George C. Marshall and what he's known for? Ah, yes. So General Marshall uh, was basically career military. Um, and when war, World War II broke out, uh, he became FDR's primary advisor in regards to the war. After the war, uh, uh, General George Marshall um, uh, uh, was tasked by Truman uh, to come up with how could the United States help Europe rebuild itself. And he and his staff uh, came up with what became known as the Marshall Plan, where the United States um, gave billions of dollars to rebuild Europe, to rebuild Europe. Um, and under the theory that World War I left Germany so poor and so destructured, right? Like their infrastructure yes. was destroyed, that it actually led to World War II. Yeah, and because the, and they sort of because they had nowhere to go. Like they they were poverty stricken. They were expected to pay back all kinds of debts. You know. It, so it, it, it so part of it was we learned a lesson after World War One. Part of it was humanitarian, but part of it was okay. Narrow American self-interest. I mean, and in. And I actually Let's not have to come back and do this in another and, and 20 I, years. And I actually use this as an example with my students in my public policy class, um, you know, because narrow self-interest frequently gets criticized as a poor reason for public policy. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. OK, narrow self-interest was one of the chief, if you will, foundations of the Marshall Plan. If we rebuild Europe, okay, we have a trading partner. We have trading partners. Okay. Um, we also have a buffer in regards to the Cold War with the Soviet Union. Right. Okay. It was and, totally in our best interest to rebuild okay, Europe. Okay. And these countries are going to be our allies. Why? Because we help them rebuild. Right. They're not going to jump in bed with the Soviets. They're going to be our allies, right? Okay. And did the Marshall Plan extend to Japan? Was it everybody we had fought with? Uh, I or only is it just Europe. I, I thought it, it was just Europe. I thought it was just Europe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. 
uh, but fascinating individual, right? But that's one of those controversies of the Marshall Plan is, so when you think about the criticisms, most of the criticism I think that comes from the, the DOD is money. People yes. are like, why are we spending this kind of money on defense when, what are we worried about, Mexico or Canada invading? Like, come on. <laughs> right? You, you know, Mexico yeah. has a better chance than Canada, I think. But I think that either way, we're probably pretty safe. Like, it's not, it's not likely to be. And we have these giant oceans between us and everybody else. Yes. So you get the interballistic missiles, and that's a, a greater concern sort of later on. But, but it does seem like we spend a lot of money. But, there, but another criticism is the Marshall Plan, right, is this sort of idea of why are we spending a gazillion dollars, which is not how much it was. I can't remember how many billion it was. It was back in the day quite a bit of money. But, but one of the modern criticisms, at least that I am very much aware of, because you beat it into me in the Homeland Security program when you were my <laughs> professor, is that, that we were ill-prepared for what has become the war on terror or terrorism attacks. We yes. were ill-prepared for 9-11. Mm -hmm. It didn't occur to anybody that somebody would use a plane as a giant bomb, which is what happened, right? Because when you take off from Boston, going across the nation, you have a lot of fuel on that plane. Yes. If you turn it and fly it into a building in New York, you are going to have a giant bomb. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually very clever. I'm not wishing to kudo bin Laden. Or well, I mean, but, it's a clever that we had as not As a weapon. Yeah, I mean, as a weapon. Right. Okay. Um, but but isn't the biggest sort of criticism of DOD Vietnam? Yeah. So beyond the fact that we spend a significant percentage of our gross domestic product on defense spending, right? Um, there have been any number of criticisms, um, Vietnam being the most obvious, um, get, you know, um, Do you think people are are criticized the DOD because we lost Vietnam or because they lied about Vietnam? I think it's both. Okay. And I think it's both. And um, and again, you know, McNamara was the department, uh, the secretary of the Department of Defense, Robert McNamara. And before he got uh, hired by the Kennedy administration, he was the, uh, the CEO of the Ford Motor Company. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. And, and he was one of the quote unquote whiz kids of the Kennedy administration, ah. right? The best and the brightest. We're going to bring the, the best science and uh, uh, technology, and we're going to bring it to bear to what the federal government does. But what happens when your science and your technology, okay, isn't Meets their jungle. Yes, right? I, I mean, not to yes. be ugly, but frankly, it does, meets it their does, jungle. Doesn't work with an opponent that is highly motivated, okay, um, in a part of the world that many Americans didn't understand why we were there. Or couldn't right? find on a map. Okay. Um, and it really forced the Department of Defense to change its thought processes about going to war, 
And you saw this, for instance, pretty clearly with the Persian Gulf War during the Bush 41 administration, because the, the chairperson of the Joint Chiefs of Staff was Colin Powell, who was a junior officer during Vietnam. And Powell made it very clear, if we're going to go to war, okay, in the Persian Gulf, we need to have a clearly identified mission. We need to know what is or is not a victory. And we need the support of the United States Congress and the American people before we go. And we need an exit strategy. Yes. Um, which it's funny because I don't think that anybody, at least from my memory of Desert Storm, right, just the first 41's. Um, yeah, yeah, the Persian Gulf. Yeah, Persian Gulf War. Um, OK, so basically, for folks who don't know, quick summary, um, Iraq invades Cuba. I mean, it's oh. Kuwait. Kuwait. Cuba. Cuba. <laughs> Cuba. Cuba like, what? Um, invades Kuwait and Kuwait's like, whoa, 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 whoa. And they did it to get Kuwait's oil. Sure. And yep. the and Kuwait said, excuse me, United States, could you lend us a hand with this? And the United States said, we would love to lend you a hand with that. <laughs> and we came in and we pushed them back. We pushed Iraq back. Sure did. And and then it was over, right? Like yes. Iraq got pushed back and they haven't gone back into Kuwait. They they yes. they learned a valuable lesson about about when Americans, you know, like, but that that war, because it was discreet, right? It, there was a beginning and a middle and an end. Yes. You I don't think very many Americans have much heartburn in terms of that. I think they're like, yeah, okay. It's when wars get weird, like Iraq and Afghanistan, where it just goes on and on and on, and you can't figure out what we're trying to do. Or, Yeah, the global war on terrorism um, is uh, another you know, point of critique, right? Um, and, and Nia, you know this because uh, of your studies in Homeland Security. One of the difficulties that nation states have in fighting terrorism is how do you know when you've defeated a, a <laughs> terrorism? Right, right. How do you know when you've defeated terrorism? You know when you've captured specific individuals. And yes. you can say, what, right, like when President Obama was like, we got bin Laden, right, or, or whoever. You know when you've gotten individuals, but because you're fighting an idea. Yes. How do you... How do you say, and now we're done. We have fought terrorism and terrorism is finished. Like it's not, as long as there have been more than three humans, <laughs> there have been forms of terrorism. Okay. Like terrorism goes back to biblical times. It's well, not it, a thing it, you can just say, and we're finished. It, it's a weird, it's like the war on drugs. You can't, yeah, it, you can't fight it, a war on war. drugs. How do you know when you've when you've eradicated well, drugs from the earth? I mean, and think about, for instance, uh, Nia, you know, the, the British experience with the uh, Irish uh, Irish Republican Army. The right? IRA. Right. OK, we're talking about, you know, seven, eight decades. Exactly. The only way you could possibly 
finish that completely we build to kill every person in ireland which is not something you want to do so so you know and, and so it, short of that how do you finish you know a war like that right and right. um and, and in case of afghanistan badly well i mean and and and, and we've seen this right and uh, the other criticism and 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 i know you know we've been critical of of president trump but president trump you know made a point that i think many americans would probably like their elected officials to actually give some thought to which is the united states has the largest military in the world it's larger than the next seven largest militaries combined so why are we the ones well, yeah, I, I agree with President Trump that if we are going to be the policemen of the world, right, right. If, if everybody turns to the United States as their, okay, well, the United States will fix it, then they probably should contribute equally. And, yeah. and, and, and you know, saying that we're the wealthiest nation, I, we're not even, I don't think President Trump was saying they should they should give the same amount of money, but they should give the same percentage of money that yeah. the United States does if you expect the United States to be the world's police force. Yeah, and, and, and this ties into, I think, a larger debate that many Americans just don't understand. When we spend all this money on the Department of Defense, when you combine DOD expenditures, plus what we spend on entitlement spending, the percentage of the federal government spending pie that is discretionary, where we can go ahead and say, ooh, hey, let's go ahead and, you know, uh, take care of... Uh, let's forgive all student loans. Loaning, okay. Let's forgive that, all student loans. There is... This much of the pie, I'm holding my fingers apart from each other. Y'all, I realize just now y'all can't see that, but it's what it's some tiny percentage, percentage. that's left. And there just isn't money to do a lot of discretionary spending if you spend this much money on the DOD. Yes. Okay. And and and, and this has been our existence, you know, you know, for basically 75 years now. Yeah, it's probably time to rethink this. Yeah. But the problem is, and, and I'd like to, and my opinion, or sorry, my part of the opinion part here is um, it's entrenched. Oh, sure it is. We're, right. We, uh, but what do you want us to do? We always spend that money on this, right? <laughs> yeah, like it's right. really hard. And the DOD has been extraordinarily clever in building bases all over this country in employing military all over this country so that when you when congress says oh i need to cut we need to cut blah blah from the military spending other people in congress say no 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 because it's their constituents that are being affected like the dod has been very smart about how it's gone about we might want to do a, an upcoming episode neo on um uh BRAC. um uh, which is the uh, uh, base, 
I'm going to get the uh, official name. Base realignment enclosure um, uh, uh, process, okay? Because I, I don't think many uh, uh, Americans understand that. <clears throat> Closing a base? Is, is, oh, my gosh. It, is... You've heard the expression, an act of God is required. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> but it's not only just bases in the United States, it's bases around the world. Right. 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 I mean, if you close a base in, you know, people say we should pull all of our bases in various countries. Some of those countries, some of the cities in those countries depend on the bases in order to exist. Like now you're going to put throw thousands of people out of work you're going to throw off local economies enormously but that's it's and not they, as simple as oh, and just have, close it and we'll all go home and they have strategic importance in regards to those those nations um uh, uh defense strategies it has strategic importance and just purely symbolic right right okay the united right. states is here has a right? presence Okay. That's one of the reasons we have embassies around the world, right? Is to yeah. have a presence. Presence. In the world. Yeah. Right. You know, this is one of the ways that we make a commitment to other nations, right? You know, we got your back. Right. Okay. Or and we've got an eye on you. <laughs> yeah. Right. I mean, it could go either way. And there's, that's not a terrible thing, too, when you're talking about rogue nuclear powers. Yes. For somebody I mean, to be able to say, and we're keeping an eye on you. Just, just so okay. you know. But yeah, I, I really do believe uh, we should do just a, okay. a, a, an episode about. Um, we'll do that. A, an episode yeah. on sort of foreign bases and. Yeah, national they, bases and well, not well, just closure but maintenance and why we do yeah i mean the, the, why the, we the, have them where we the have whole them. BRAC process is just utterly fascinating right <laughs> i mean because in nia you and i again we record this podcast in a state that has one of the highest percentages of the state gdp affected by de defense department spending Right. I think the, I think the only other state in the country that has a higher percentage of its GDP that is comprised of DOD spending is California. Right. Virginia's I mean mi military it, through and through, which yeah. is why when we criticize, we criticize with love. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, hey. So much of this podcast is us saying is hey. criticism with love. <laughs> well, I mean, Again, it's it's commentary with love. Well, 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 but it's understanding that there are trade-offs, right. right? Okay, I mean we're we're concluding with criticisms, but quite obviously, you and I over the last two podcast episodes are just utterly fascinated by a democratic nation that one of the, one of its first departments was the creation of the Department of War. <laughs> I mean, well, and one of the things that. Keep in mind people who are people who say the military bu budget shouldn't be this high. And then they also say we should intervene in ongoing wars around the world, for instance, Ukraine, Russia. You can't have that both ways. No. You're either going to have to spend the money to intervene in a war or you're not going to spend the money. But 
you can't say I want a smaller DOD, but I want to be able to like you can say those things, but it's nuanced, as is everything that really? we ever talk about on this podcast. Yes, yes. I don't think we've ever talked about anything that was vi- that was absolutely clear. Yeah. <laughs> in terms of, you know, the red pill or the blue pill. Like I don't think it's it, it's never. There's always the purple pill. There's always the always thing in the middle. Middle. That's right. Where you're like, yeah, but if you want that, then you're going to have to allow for some spending in the in the in the department of defense if you want to be able to intervene in situations like that so yeah there's because yeah because those interventions require capacity exactly i mean and and we saw this pretty clearly with world war one and world war two okay um and ramping up is expensive and hard to do yes okay um but if you already have the capacity then you can make informed decisions about intervening around the world exactly yeah okay anyways great conversation nia thank you yeah thank you so much augie yep you've been listening to civil discourse brought to you by vcu libraries Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the workshop for technical assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu slash discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.